So Logan gets to do announcements again, right? You didn't embarrass anybody or good job. Way to go. Um, glad you guys are here this morning. One more kind of quick announcement, something to make you aware of. I think we addressed it uh, or brought it to your attention last week or so. Um, I got invited. Uh, it was probably six, eight weeks ago now. I had a friend at another church call me and say, hey, would you come to this pastor's gathering we're doing for pastors in the area to talk about a conference that's coming up? And I was like, sure. Didn't he know what it was? Wasn't sure what it was. And I got there and realized this is a conference on sexuality. And I'm like, this is I feel awkward. This is weird. Why in the world am I here? And I really didn't want to be there. But I sat through this piece that morning as these people talked to pastors. And I was like, this is fantastic. Like, you know, you have really low expectations. And it's like, this is fantastic. And so we're talking to you guys about it because I'd love for you to come. Um. What this Reclaiming Sexuality Conference is about is at Riverstone, which is just 15 minutes down the road, kind of our mother church, if you if you will, of our network. You know, Dr. Julie Slattery is one of the key speakers of this, and she's nationally known Christian um, counselor. But, you know, she's addressing and, and trying to lead a movement in the church uh, as, as one of the leaders for the church to recognize, look, Culture is defining sexuality differently than we would define it in the church. And the church has to get on board with the conversation, right? That the church and we as Christians should not be silent about something that God created and is good. So if God's not ashamed of creating sexuality, why should we be ashamed of something that he created that is beautiful and actually have a voice in the conversation, right? One of the things, one of the points that, that Dr. Slattery makes is that, you know, churches oftentimes when people or you think about the church and the church's voice on sexuality, you know, you, you think of the church saying specifically three things. Don't have sex before marriage. Once you get married, then you can have all the sex you want. And the third thing is gay people are going to hell. And isn't it a shame that the gospel that we present in Jesus Christ and the, and, the, and the person who we follow in Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life so that we could have a relationship with him, that that's really what the, his church has, has, has to say about something that he created and that is beautiful. So we as a church, we as the, the people, the, the Christians in a culture should be a change agent and have a voice at this table, and, and that we, we've got to be able to kind of come to the table and recognize how we begin doing that in a new way. Um, one of the things that they're, they're kind of unpacking is this reality that culture is directly, it directly follows leadership. And where we're not putting leaders at the table, we've got to uh, learn how to do that. If we're going to uh, connect with this culture, then we've got to learn how to handle addressing and talking about sexual issues. So if you want... You know, if you want to be a part of actually a movement, and this is where I think it's great for the Transformation Network and churches all over, actually, Atlanta um, are planning to send people. But would love for you guys to come and you're going to hear a little more about that as I dive into this message. So just want to kind of throw that special announcement out there for you. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off this last week. If you've been with us for the, the past season, we're diving into the second half of the book of Ephesians last fall. We went through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and this fall we're going through the, the next three chapters, so chapters four through six of Ephesians, and wrapping up this letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. So we are picking up where Steve left off last week. We talked about 
Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 21, and we're going to pick up and look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 this morning. And if any of you have kind of read ahead or looked at what we're recognizing, then, you know, honestly, this is a, this is a challenging message, right? This is where the rubber meets the road because of what we've been diving and unpacking from this letter in Ephesians. Like, here is this practical applicable place where the gospel is applied into our life and the topic is marriage. And in order to to unpack the reality of what what we're seeing being taught and what we understand is should be a reality of Christian marriage, um, then we're going to look at three specific things. Number one is the context of this the scripture that we're going to dive into. Second is what this term love that's being used is meant to understand uh, that we understand what is meant there um, in this passage. And third is the outcome that we can see that's being produced. So if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read this passage to us and then we're going to dive in. So Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also Wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For if we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So I don't know what your understanding or what your thoughts of when, when we kind of dive into this this text, but we're going to we're going to look at a couple things to start with. Number one is in the day that this letter was written, a common thing that was taking place in the culture were what what's kind of referred to or known as as house codes. Not completely different from if you were to go to the beach and rent an apartment or rent a house at the beach, you would probably get a list of instructions. OK, when you're done. Turn the air AC on 78, you know, put your towels in the, in the washing machine. You know, here's a list of instructions of how we want things done in our house if you're renting someone's house, right? Well, there were instructions being given over, let's just say that Ben has a house and, you know, he's a well-to-do guy and that Ben's married with some kids and has got a, a few people that work for him in this, in this day and age, it would have been slaves, that there were There would be rules that Ben kind of established for his house of what he expects and what he wants done in his house, right? That was very common. And some of the reality and some of the teaching that was coming out of this Christian movement began to kind of rattle people because there were things being addressed in this Christian movement that were countercultural, right? So there were things like freedom, right? That there was an equality among gender. There were things about loving and submitting to one another that were being taught in the Christian world. And, and the, the reality is the culture kind of stood on edge and said, are they trying to bring an end to the society that we've known? Right. And just the opposite. They're actually not trying to bring an end to the society of the known. They're just trying to love 
and embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's not trying to make an enemy of one thing. It's to try to make a life towards something else, right? And so we, we could go in, and Steve may go into deeper aspects of that in the coming weeks, but this reality of, of that this letter is written in the same kind of house code manner because who's being addressed in house codes are wives and children and slaves. But different in Paul's letter where you're, you're, he's not just addressing wives and children and slaves, he's also addressing those who are in authority. He's also addressing those who are in power, and he's inviting those who have authority and who may have been empowered to become servants. And that's the heart of this gospel message, and that's the heart of what it meant for them in their day. It is absolutely the heart of what it also means for us in our day. And that's what I think you're going to see as we unpack this this morning. In order to be, to be able to pick up and understand what we see in the, this, this beginning verse, verse 22, where it says, wives submit to your husbands, then I want to put it into the context. And the context is what Steve preached on last week, you know, looking at, at chapter 5, verse 1, right, where he said, be imitators of God, therefore, and dearly, dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Be imitators of Jesus Christ is the context. Because and then verse 21, before this passage begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In that context, then we hear Paul saying, wives, submit to your husbands, right? In order to understand the theology that we've been unpacking now for, you know, last fall and this fall, as we are looking into Ephesians, we have to understand the reality of what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying in chapter four that we talked about a few weeks ago is that there is that we as Christians make up the body. The church, the body of Jesus Christ. Now, where this come from, as as I was sitting in worship this morning, it just kind of dawned on me. Well, this is this is day one of Paul's interaction with Christ. If you if you recall or, you know, Paul's story on the road to Damascus, he he hears this loud voice and there's like this thunder and lightning. and He goes blind. You're, you're kind of familiar with that story. And he hears Jesus say to him, Saul, his name was Saul at the time, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Saul, why are you persecuting the people that follow in my way? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus' voice speaking. So from the very introduction of Paul, of Saul, who became Paul, who wrote this letter, Saul's understanding of who Christ is, it is incorporating one body, Christ the head, we are the people, and he unpacks that as we went through in, in Ephesians chapter 4, right? So we have to understand that collective piece. From that context, you can hear why, where Paul goes into the second half of chapter 4, and he says, be truth tellers. You know, speak truthfully and honestly to one another, right? Because if you are a part of one body, why would you want to keep secrets or hide truth from what would be valuable or helpful to the other parts of the body where they could be healthy as well. Why would you not want the body to be united and in agreement by speaking truth and love? So we have a responsibility, but we have to recognize this call and this theology that we see Paul clearly representing here, that there is a united effort and there is the 
there is the ability for us as Christians to be united as one in the body, but be united as one and connected with Christ. Okay? That's the context that you've got to be able to kind of understand if we're going to unpack this. Right now, diving into the verse, our first verse here, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right? Now, if we look at the Greek writing of this. So the, the, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. And what we have in front of us of what we're reading here today, and this is the NIV, is that it has been translated from the Greek into English so that you and I can read it and understand it. Or else we would have to be able to pick up and read Greek to read scripture, right? So the original writings are in Greek. And what this passage says in verse 22 in the Greek is interesting. It says, literally, like transwording word for word, the Greek word for this would be this, right? It would say, Wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what word might be missing here? And why do you think we don't have it written that way in English? Wives to your own husband as to the Lord. Because you're missing the verb there of what the wives being asked to do. But in the, it's interesting to me that the very thing that, unfortunately, some of those in Christendom have used as a whip across the back of women to tell them to submit is actually not the reality of what that specific text says. Now, I think God just has a sense of humor sometimes. But the reality is this inferred piece, submit, why submit to your husband, is actually not what the text says. It is accurately translated that submit is a great reality and a great summary of what is being said there. But the equality that is taking place in this entire book that I've just been speaking of for the last couple minutes, the context Of what is being said, the context of verse 21, that there is a mutual submission that should be taking place among one another is not making verse 22 a hierarchical statement. Wives, you should submit to your husbands because they are Lord over you. No, not at all. There is but one Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. And in his lordship, he gives a responsibility for the husband. And that's what we're diving into next. So in the context, first, you have to understand, you know, what's being said in verse 22. Now we're diving into verse 23. And I'll read it for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the savior. So this term head here in in the Greek is kapel. So I didn't have a Greek word to give you for submit because it wasn't offered in 22. This term kapel to head was not a hierarchical term to lord over. If if the Lord was saying, wives submit, then it would make sense for the next verse to be husband's rule. However, that's not what the text says. It says, husbands, love your wives. You're the head, the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and there's this, this call to love. There is this, Kephel has a, the reality of a responsibility that is given. There's one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his lordship, he has given a responsibility to the husband to care for, to nurture, to support, to serve his wife, just as he has cared for and nurtured and supported his church. This is not about authority. This is about love. This is about mutual submission. This is about laying down my life for and in care for the other person. 
So if I were to to kind of transliterate, okay, or give a summary of verses 22 and 23, like so if I were going to give a paraphrase of verses 22 and 23, this is what what I've written out. Wives, submit, revere, respect, love your husbands just as you as you do the Lord. For the husband is the one who has responsibility for the wife, just as Christ is the one who has responsibility for the church, his body of which he is the savior. Again, where somehow we have taken the context of verse 22 to say, wives, submit to your husbands. And we've made that a hierarchical term in order to put down another person. It completely disaligns with the reality of the gospel. Because the reality of the gospel is to equip and empower through a love and a service. And where that term or where that twisted perspective of verse 22 came into the church, I don't know. But it absolutely negates the message that's being presented in this letter and the message that is resounding through the Old Testament. Husbands, we have a responsibility. Part two, what we're going to dive into is understanding this term love. So you may have heard messages or sermons if you've gone to church most of your life on on four different Greek terms. Again, we're referring to Greek, four different Greek terms that may be used for, for love. There's there's storge that has to do with an empathy type of love. There's there's philia that has to do with a brotherly, affectionate friendship love. There's eros that has to do with a passionate, a sexual desire and love for an agape. That's an unconditional love. Right. Only in Christian marriage. Do these four things come together, forming a recipe to create something beautiful? Only in Christian marriage does an, a compassion and empathy and a, and a brotherly friendship and a, and a sexual desire for and an unconditional reality form a recipe for something beautiful. Outside of that Christian marriage, we get a distorted fractured reality of what love means. Love, as we look at it from the biblical context, because what we see in love and what we understand and what is referred to in love in our culture means a lot of different things. But if we're going to understand what does love mean as it's being referred to in this text, then here's a, here's a reality of a definition. Biblical love focuses on the benefit to the person it is being expressed toward regardless of whether there is a person, a personal cost involved. Let me read that again. Biblical love focuses on the benefit to the person it is being expressed toward, regardless of whether there is a personal cost involved. Friends, this is Jesus Christ on the cross. Without concern or worry for the reality of what this is going to cost him, he expressed himself and he died on a cross, knowing the pain, knowing the reality of what is is going to take place. He did not consider what that is going to mean for him or let that keep him from loving and expressing what would be beneficial to you and to me and to the world. He expressed that love. That is the reality of the love that we're diving into if we're going to recognize the love that he's called us to in a marriage relationship. This 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 love goes so deep. There is a, a reality that I talk to as, as couples come, they, you know, seek some level of pastoral counseling, 
uh, you know, in a marriage or whatever, one of the things that I always talk about is that God created marriage as a three-party system. He didn't create it as a two-party system. And if you probably make it into my office because you need some help in your marriage, you're probably functioning as though it's a two-party system. God created it as a three-party system, right? And it's interesting to me. Now, you've got to kind of lighten up with me in the next couple of things I'm saying. I said, I said one of these things earlier in the first service, the first time I said it publicly, and I was like, I might get myself in trouble and not be able to say it in the second service. We're going to get there in a second. But um, one, of the, one of the realities that we're looking at is, okay, think about it. Who God and his lordship, who Jesus give responsibility to, the husband or the wife, to care for, provide, and to be the spiritual leader, you know, in this context, right? The husband. Um, anybody see a problem with that? Uh, my wife just went out of town to Scotland on the Scotland trip, and I'm like, okay, boys, we're eating off paper plates, and, you know, we got to, we may, we're going to order pizza, you know, a couple days into this thing. Has anybody seen our dog, you know, in a few days? It's okay. Who's the more responsible of the two genders in a marriage, you know, and without a, a showing of hands? I think, guys, we recognize. Okay. And here's where I could get in trouble. You have to laugh with me. I mean this a bit sarcastically, but there is some truth to it, right? If you look at, this is what I hadn't said publicly for this morning. If you look at the order of creation, okay? God created the heavens and the earth. God created the sky and the sea. Then land comes about. Then birds and animals. And then he creates man, right? There is an order of events. And each each order of events, things get a little bit more complicated, right? And then he created man. And then he created woman. And God's like done with creation. We're not getting more complicated than that, boys. we got DNA and everything else. But once we got woman... Created and no man go figure that out. And we've reached our climax of complication. OK, I say that jokingly. Right. But there's some truth to it. If you look at it. OK, so, yeah. So women can be a more complicated. Praise God. They're more. They're the more detail oriented. Right now. I say all this. If you look at and this is beautiful. If you look at why did God give. The responsibility to the man. I'm just pointing out from my perspective part of what that could mean. The message in this letter, especially as you dive into the first couple chapters of this letter, is this message of grace. Grace. Let me just define grace. Grace for you. Grace is God enabling and empowering us to do that which we could not do apart from him. We could not be saved apart from grace. We cannot earn our salvation. Grace is God enabling and empowering us to do what we could not do apart from him. Men, do we need God to give us grace to be leaders and to have be the, be the responsible men that God is calling us to be in our marriages? Everybody, men, just do this. Uh-huh. Yep, I need grace. I need God's supernatural empowerment to enable me and empower me. To love as he loves, to care for and nurture and support my wife. Because I don't know how to do that myself. I'm not very good at doing it myself. I'm doing good to brush my teeth before I go to bed, right? Men, we need God's help. So, which, I mean, I'm just saying, from my logical perspective, it makes sense, right? Women, you know, 
my husband needs some grace, some supernatural empowerment of the Spirit of God, enabling him to lead me and to be a source in my life to all that's good. Now we're going to look into the next few verses here. Beginning in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing with water through the word. And so and so to present to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, bear with me. I'm, a, I'm an analogy guy. I kind of think in pictures. So forgive my kind of crude analogy, but imagine it this way, husbands, right? There's a high responsibility and and there's a challenge for you and I in this, right? That as men, we have this responsibility and thank God we can call out to his spirit and be empowered to to lead, empowered to to serve, empowered to, to bend the knee and to sacrifice on behalf for our wives, right? But imagine this text, imagine this context of imagine that we are like a car wash for our wives being the car to come through in our time of marriage. That the Lord is saying, here is a washcloth of my word. And whoever she has been, your role and your responsibility is that as she comes through this relationship of who you are, you have done everything that you could to bend the knee, to selflessly serve and to care for and to take the word and to apply it into her life and to coach and to con- and, and concern yourself with where she is spiritually. Because one day, men, one day you would be as, as though you would stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I love you. And I have tried to love my wife as in an expression to love you. And all the little dents or all the little dings or all the little twisted thoughts that she had, Lord, I have tried to, to be empowered by your spirit to present her to you without spot and without wrinkle and without blemish. In my expression to love you and to love her, I have done my best to lead her and to guide her to, the, to be holy in your sight. And this is the responsibility you've given me. And so I've given myself fully as an act of worship before you in service to her and in this world to do my best to present to you your bride. Husbands, that's my perspective on this challenge and this responsibility that you and I have in a Christian marriage. Now, maybe you're like, well, that's pretty hard. That's pretty harsh. The reality is this uh, this step that we take, as many of you that, that may know me and know what Rebecca and I, you know, our last year was like. Rebecca, a year ago, last February, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, um, and you know, as you can imagine, that just brings with it, a, a, you know, a year plus worth of different processes and procedures and everything else that, that comes around. But initially, that diagnosis and understand, trying to understand and recognize what is this going to mean and what is this mean for us, naturally, if you're anything like us, you know, your mind just wanders. And the enemy loves to get a hold of your wandering mind, and your mind wanders to what if. And those are not pr- pretty thoughts, you know, when there's a cancer diagnosis. Like, what if? I'm, and it just it becomes overwhelming. And as I was praying into this, I just felt like as I was praying one morning, I just thought the Lord said, Scott, you know, Matthew 6, Matthew 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day 
has enough trouble of its own. And as I begin, I mean, I could have quoted the, I probably could have mostly quoted that verse to you before that moment. But as I began praying into, well, what is this? Why is this so important? And just the wisdom that I began to see and be grateful for and thankful for that Jesus, Jesus speaking, he says, do not worry about tomorrow. You only have today. And what your mind is racing to and what your mind is wandering to that are negative thoughts is all worrying about tomorrow. And Jesus addresses that he gives counsel and he gives wisdom. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today. You only have today. And I just began to just the layers of the wisdom in Jesus statement there. It just became became unpacked in this in the context of what we were going through. And I just began to share with Rebecca, Rebecca. Take that thought captive. We've got to quit thinking about what this could mean as though the worst case scenario is the reality. Jesus specifically says, don't essentially don't be pessimistic. Don't worry about tomorrow. You only have today. And as we begin trying to say, Jesus, we want to apply your truth into our life because we know that in your truth and in the life that you have for us is a good thing. And as that practice began to take over the thoughts that we would think, I'm going to say we had a few tearful nights in bed. Wrestling with, I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to imagine. I'm going to take those thoughts captive and I'm going to quit having them. And within a week to ten days, we just went from this place of concern and worry to a place of peace that has lasted since. We don't think about what's going to happen next. Like, the reality of Jesus' wisdom that's just applied into the moment changes our lives. And there's just maybe one moment out of 10,000 maybe that I've gotten wrong. There may be just one moment where supernaturally he led me to be able to dive into that text and then to, to like a little washcloth. Just say, let's let's rub on this, this stain. Let's rub on this muddy spot together and get that thought out of the way. And it changed our lives. How many opportunities has he given you, husbands? And listen, there's nothing about today's message that you should be feeling as condemnation or as guilt. There's everything that I'm hoping that you hear in today's message that gives you hope and a picture of the preferred future, that you can step into the vision and it be a reality of what Jesus Christ has for you in, in, your, in your life as a husband. That Jesus Christ is inviting you to an abundant life because this reality of who we know Jesus to be is that the, everything that we know about the character of God represents what we understand about this word love that we just discussed. The very character of God is wrapped up in this person who, without concern of what it would mean to him, he cared for and expressed a love that was beneficial to us. And that very same God that is defined by that love is the person you and I were created in the image of. We were created in the image of To be a people who are not concerned with what the expression of love costs us, but only what the expression of love can be given and received to the person in which we're looking to express it to. That's this picture of Christian marriage that is a Christian marriage, not about hierarchy. Yes, there's a level of responsibility that's given, but a Christian marriage that is about mutual submission. That is about sacrifice. Husbands, we have a role to make sacrifices on the benefit 
and to the benefit of our wives. Wives, you have a role to respect your husbands, just as we see in the last verse in this passage, right? So, wives, give yourself unselfishly and show respect to your husbands. Husbands, unselfishly serve and care for and sacrifice for your wife. This is following in Jesus' nature, right? The one thing that makes marriages work is the one thing that makes relationships work. And it's the unselfish love of God. Where we are being empowered by God's love, something we cannot do, His grace. We cannot love unconditionally. It requires a supernatural empowerment by Him to love in this way. And He created marriage as a three-party system. And His desire is to be the third party. And our hearts learn to make it about the third party. Then we're no longer pointing the finger and mad at the other person. We're no longer making it about, you know, wives being able to, you know, give an excuse and say, well... I can't give my husband that kind of respect because you don't he doesn't deserve that respect. If you only knew what kind of husband my husband's been, he does not deserve that respect. I have good news for you. Jesus came, died on the cross, gives us a life to imitate so that we can live by unconditional love, not conditional love. Making respecting your husband's a conditional reality and listening to that voice in your head to say he doesn't deserve it and he's got to earn it is absolutely opposed to the reality and the life that the gospel brings when it's applied into our lives. And that should give you hope. Now, it may frustrate you a little bit because you may be married to a mean son of a gun, a guy who's completely undeserving of respect. But who does Christ Invite you to follow. Who does he invite? What does he invite us to imitate? He invites us to to represent just as though we would unto the Lord that we're giving ourselves to him. And and husbands, we have this role and responsibility to care for and to nurture and support and to disciple spiritually our wives. We are called and have a responsibility to be spiritual leaders. So, guys, just telling you, now's a good moment to pull out your phone and take a picture. I'm going to give you a practical piece to start with. A few different ways, suggestions of how you can take a step. I don't care where you've been up to this point. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care where you've been spiritually. May you feel like you're doing a great job in this. You probably got plenty of room for improvement, right? Right, wives? Right? This is husband's. I need you to hear this because this is the gospel of Jesus Christ where the rubber meets the road. We've been talking about this for a while, right? Now we're going to apply the truths of the gospel into our life. And here's where the stuff hits the fan. The stuff hits the fan is where it's applied into the reality of how we're expressing it to others in this world. Specifically where he starts is with your wife. So you have a responsibility to lead your wife spiritually. You want to begin? Then here's a few suggestions. Husbands, begin with growth. Just take a, take a step. I don't care if you hadn't taken a step till now. Take a step to grow toward Christ. Right? Here's another idea. Write down, sit down, take a few minutes to pray about, you know, where, what are ways that I can sacrifice for my wife this week? And then challenge yourself 
to apply some of those and make that a regular habit. Right. Buy a book. I'm, I think a good book to start with is, is um, Dr. Dr. Emirate Igret's book, Love and Respect. Buy a book. You don't you don't have to be able to lead your wife in prayer in this moment. You just got to start somewhere. You can read, then buy a book and read it together. But you take the initiative to buy the book and encourage her. Read the book yourself or encourage you know her to read it with you and y'all take turns. However you want to do it. But take a step, right? Learn your wife's prayer language. A lot of you may be familiar with, you know, Gary Chapman's five love languages. If you hadn't, there's another book you can buy. But, you know, do you know what your wife's love language is? And if you don't, well, then take a step. Learn what your wife's love language is and then learn how to speak that language. Now, if you're like me, you're probably really bad at it. Like, of course, Rebecca's love language is like my number five. Right. Isn't that funny how that is? But what greater opportunity for God to empower me by his spirit to do things that I'm not good at doing myself? Love her love, you know, learn her love language. Pray. Maybe you're not in the habit of praying. Maybe you pray all the time. Wherever you are, just take a step. Pray. Lord, I need your help. I need your help because your, your word says that the fruits of your spirit are love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. Now, you want to you take a moment and think about grace? Try to just muster those up on your own. Try that for a week and see how you get. And then take the next week and say, okay, Lord, I want to come to you and I'm asking you, would you move in my life and begin empowering me to do what I cannot do on my own? Teach me how to love and to be patient. Teach me how to be gentle and kind. And see what the Lord has in store for you. But let it begin with praying. Another suggestion, you know, seek out other men that you can walk with. Men, we need some help. I need help. And what greater place than having other guys that can sit around and encourage each other and say, hey, you know, I'm doing this or I tried that. And just, you know, challenge each other, rub up against each other, that you can actually begin imitating the types of things that Christ wants to do in you and through you. And the last suggestion that I'm throwing out for this morning, I mean, they could be endless, but sign up for the Reclaiming Sexuality Conference, right? It's Saturday morning. It's 29 bucks over at Riverstone. It's 15 minutes away. You're going to, by signing your, you and your wife up, you're taking a step to be the spiritual influence in your marriage. All you got to do is show up, pay your 29 bucks or what it is, and you're going to walk away from the things that are being addressed in that that conference, maybe you're like, I don't know how to have a spiritual conversation with my wife. Go to the conference. You're going to have a lot of things that are easy to talk about because there are a lot of kind of perspective breaking things that they're throwing out there. It's going to be easy to have a conversation over dinner that night that's about something spiritual. One of the things that I want you to realize as we kind of wrap this up is I understand that there's a weight to this and I understand you know, that there have been abuses to how these texts are used. But the main thing that I want you to hear from me is that there is a call and a responsibility, men, that we have in our in our marriages. Women, there is a call and responsibility that you have in your marriage. We all have a call and a mutual responsibility to submit and to serve and care for one another's best interests. Every one of us has this call to be imitators of Jesus Christ 
And that was referring to the cross. That was the image that he left as the icon over who we are to become and the one we are to become like. And he didn't leave us as orphans. No, he's given us his spirit to come and live within us and empower us to do what we cannot do apart from him. Now, husbands, I understand that this teaching in this text brings a challenge with it, and I'm about to challenge you even more. Um, to my right and my left are two different tables with communion elements. And I'm inviting you in the next few moments as Chandler comes and leads us in a time of worship. I'm inviting you to come and serve your wife communion. And on the screen are the things that I'm asking you to say as you stand here with your wife. You take the or invite her to, to take the cracker and say the body of Christ that was broken for you. And in like manner, in reflection of all that Christ did, this is the cup. The, this symbolizes and rep, you know, represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. So just say those two things. The body of Christ broken for you and the, the blood of Christ shed for you. Husbands, my challenge to you is to lead your wife up here and to lead her spiritually. Just take that small baby step and say those two things as she takes communion. To get on board with the good news and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes and brings with it a hope to transform our lives. And as we in the church have our lives transformed and begin taking steps to the realized truth, to humble ourselves and to be humbled by the love of God, we will see a transforming movement that happens outside of this church. You can't convince me that Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God won't bring people to you or cause people to interact with you that sees a change in your life of, of His movement of how you've begin, begun loving and serving one another. This is the gospel. This is the reality. We can come into church and we can check a box and we can hear this truth that's represented or we can take the step that we as vintage say we're going to embrace and we're actually going to try to apply it. And with that application, we see changed lives. If you're single, then I invite you after the couples have gone through to come and receive communion as well. But while they're coming, then pick a line and pray for that couple. Watch them come through and pray for that couple as they take communion. Recognize the responsibility that whether you have been through a divorce or whether you're single and hope to get married, you know, you have a role and responsibility to apply all the truths of God's scripture into your life. And there's an opportunity for you in this. Maybe you're, you come from a divorce and you, you recognize or you have a spouse that's not a Christian and just how painful and hurtful this is that the gospel is representing and, and a, addressing something that's not available to you. And I want you to know, just I had a, a, a lady in here earlier whose, whose husband's not a Christian and doesn't come to church. She's like, I was so mad and angry as I listened to your message, but then the Lord spoke to me and he said, this is my role to you right now. I'm going to wash you in my word. So get into my word. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to challenge you spiritually. So let me come up against you and let my spirit lead you. But you unconditionally start showing respect to your husband. Because it's not about whether or not he's deserved it. It's because this is what I have for you. Can you take my body? Can you sip from my cup? I understand it's a challenge. 
praise God that He has something more to for us than what we've known today. Let's pray. Jesus, come and have your way. Thank you that you have called us to be one body. There is more that you have in store for us. There is a love that you want to teach us and to, to lead us to walk in that does not care or concern or worry about what it's going to cost us. Lord, we're, we're just fixed on the benefit to the person that we're looking to express your love toward. Thank you that, that you empower us by your grace. Lord, I pray that you just right now just begin allowing men's hearts to cry out and say, Lord, I need some of that grace now. I don't know, even know where to begin. Lord, where we feel like we're, we, we've gotten the box checked and we're being great husbands. And Lord, I just pray for a, a dose of humility that looks to you and says, oh, there's me. So Jesus, come and have your way in our hearts. Come and transform our lives. Come and glorify yourself and who you called us and what you're making us to be. 